Hi there. I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation about the unique lessons we all have to teach one another and to learn from one another. Today is the 48th episode of Dead Man's Forest, and I'm continuing my conversation with T-Bird. If you haven't listened to episodes 46 and 47, where I start with an interview with Colleen and then switch over in the middle of it to my first conversation with T-Bird, please listen to those first because there's some context in them that I'm trying to communicate through a series of episodes. Since I'm dropping you into the middle of my conversation with T-Bird in this week's episode, I will give you a quick summary. T-Bird had talked about how in his childhood he felt forced to behave in ways that were contrary to who he was in order to defend himself. And how, as an adult, that contributed along with some very formative experiences he had on a trip to India to a deep depression that lasted almost 10 years and how meeting some influential people, many of whom he met at Naropa University, helped give him a new way of looking at his life and his role in it. I ended last week's episode with an intermediary conclusion of his, which was that you matter. And I thought that was a nice place to pause the conversation. But Thompson quickly moves on from there to some larger lessons that he learned. Let's listen. The dead man's forest, that aspect within ourselves that's dying to be heard by earth, that I'm alive and I matter. And earth, you're alive and you matter. And there's this, you know, this idea that as we empty ourselves, we let the light in. I think that's a roomy poem, that the light can come in where the wound is. But so that model of, of taking ourselves out there with some kind of an intention and marking, not marking something that we want to do. Oh, I'm going to go climb the mountain. Or, oh, I'm going to be this or be that. No, we mark where we are. So it's like we catch up with ourselves. And that's actually the biggest thing that I've learned. If anything, in all of this um, introduction, rambling, the one thing that's been so interesting to watch is that as I began to mark things, all of the backlog of emotional... Mm, it wasn't unprocessed because I've spent all of my 30s in really healthy, good dialogue about finding direction and, and with sacred community and with a therapist and with my family. And I've had, I have a great doctor and I haven't been on meds in years, but I still regularly see him and I still regularly have that communication because it's really important. I don't want to have some kind of cascading mental dialogue that leads me down this trail to suicidality again, because I recognize how precious life is. But as I've gone through these, these multiple vision fasts, what's started to happen is that the, under, the underlying grief is starting to like bubble forward. Oh, yeah, 
I know I've gone through that and I know I'm here, but wow, there was so much passion in that kid who didn't want to fight but felt forced to and then really had to surrender his his right or didn't have to, but he chose to, to try to get along, to surrender their their voice, their their inner power. And and what happened down that, oh my gosh, I, I started listening to these other people and their ideas and their beliefs and they were my parents and they were my older siblings and they were whoever, the world, the culture, and, and it took me further and further away from myself. And so without being angry anymore, it's just that what the Buddhists would call the genuine heart of sadness, the space where we break open again and again to that like, wow, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. Not to try to change it, just to like feel it. Joanna Macy does this grief work, work that reconnects. It's really beautiful. And it, it's just about that, like going all the way in, starting with gratitude and then going into our grief and then coming out of it and seeing with fresh eyes and then going forth into the world again as, as we've just alchemized our grief into our gift. This last fall, I had the most beautiful ceremony. Got to marry the most beautiful woman, my soulmate, beyond any shadow of any doubt, up on a mountain. We envisioned it. We went out for a 24-hour fast, came back into a sacred ceremony and it was it was really like that was the culmination of all of this vision fast inside of me as i'm like really marking that this is so and and it's been the most beautiful you know nine months since then but one thing that i wasn't expecting was really some of that old grief to come back and i'm like gosh where what is this why is this here oh you know and working with it for six, seven months, I recognize it's just to be felt, just to, to like, to go and to know that, that like, I am complete. And so this spring, March, I went out on the land, on our land here and did a 24-hour fast. And I just marked that I am all the way here. I'm all the way caught up with my past. It doesn't mean that things aren't going to come forward anymore, right? It doesn't mean all of that. It just just recognizing that to the land that these choices that I'm making are now mine. And, you know, as a, as a kid, there's something really scary about that. But as an adult, it's like, wow, that's, that's the initiation. Not like, oh, I have to drive this road at this speed limit and do these things because the law or somebody else or whoever else that's the authority figure. No, there is no other authority figure except for what we choose inside of ourselves. And to really like cultivate that space and so then we can actually just choose to feel sadness when sadness comes up. It's a very Zen thing. If you're hungry, eat. You know, if you're sad, be sad. If you're thinking, just think. It's like get rid of the second tier where, oh, should I be thinking? Should I be sad? Should I be? Yeah. Yeah. Thompson reflected there so much more articulately than I ever could on how he learned not to want to be someone or to be somewhere or to change or to, you know, not be depressed anymore. But he learned how to just be where he was, to take stock of all of the parts of him that were present and that he had left behind in the past so that he could be fully himself in this moment. 
The rest of our conversation is reflections on this lesson and some implications that it has for our world at large, as well as some specific examples from T-Bird's life about how he is putting these lessons into practice. It's a very Zen thing. If you're hungry, eat. You know, if you're sad, be sad. If you're thinking, just think. It's like, get rid of the second tier where, oh, should I be thinking? Should I be sad? Should I be... I really, I really sensed, especially towards the end of your story, the, the depth of that grief. The sense that I got was that it was this force crying out to be acknowledged. And that maybe that was, there was some connection between that and your previous depression. Like, like depression is maybe in a way refusing to acknowledge this thing this, you know, possibly sad thing. Grief is sad, but it's not wrong. Right, exactly. Not, and I think that's what, that's, that's essential. Into the yeah. And you know what else I heard in your story that, that jumped out at me is that this process that you have gone through in your life of, of learning as a child these coping mechanisms to deal with this bullying, of being forced to be someone that you were not naturally is reflected in what you talked about with society and that we have these ways of being that are not natural for us that are yeah. artificial opposed by this that are imposed yes. that are imposed by this industrial revolution and we are now collectively rediscovering that and I think that we as a society might have some grief that we have to process through. Oh, we have so much. Right? We are like this depressed society because we're unable to experience, to just live in the grief and the sadness and accept that, oh, we have done all of this damage. And it's not okay, but it is. But it is. It, it is. It exists. It is. That's it. Right. And that's moving beyond the paradigm of duality that it was right or it was wrong because we, we, we can't undo it. So figuring out the blame of right or wrongness takes us out of the opportunity to just let it be that which awakens us to the right. present, which is simply that it is so. It is right, right here. Yeah. And that prevents us from moving forward. Yeah. It's like stuck in that same depression. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and you know, there's there's something to be said about it too, where the industrial growth society is a is a really interesting phrase. I first read about it, I think, in Joanna Macy's work, but the idea is simply that the way that our industrial systems work is infinite growth, except that we all know we're in a finite system. We only have this one earth right now, right? So how can we have profit margins and the bottom lines and this, you know, this XY graph where the slope is always going up at some slight degree. That's not a life-sustaining system. That's a linear-based organization of all of us. And so there's so much disenfranchisement and so much dissatisfaction. And it and that's what that's the that's the suffering of our culture is that we're we actually are all kind of enmeshed in this juggernaut, something that's grown beyond any individual or any government or any corporation's control. It's the conglomeration of all that movement 
really of earth material, of resources, of electricity, of energy in this direction of, you know, the slight line that's ever going upward. And, and we, I mean, that if you look at any like um, ecological system, that's not how ecosystems work. Ecosystems, they recycle everything. They're redundant. They're, they build from the ground up, not from the top down. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a deep passion for learning, and there, there's some sadness and grief in me that uh, during my college years, the depression really it was just really hard to get out of bed, to be quite honest. There were days where I was just, yeah, and, uh, and that aspect of myself really was kind of put on hold. And, um, and, and I had to do a lot of soul searching and talk to a lot of people about it because it's like, I feel like I, for a long time, I felt like I was so fucking behind, pardon my French, all of the people that I knew that are my age that are like, they got these careers and they, they went on and they followed their academic interests and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Mid thirties, I'm starting a master's program and and now I'm in my late 30s and I'm in a one-year graduate certificate in biomimicry and I'm applying to a PhD program and maybe I'll finish by the time I'm 45. And I'm like, what the fuck? But really, there's this like inner exasperation. And the reality is, though, for me, it's just what I had to go through. I don't know why. I can't know why any of that. I mean, it's just like knowing why is a little bit. But but there is there is that I think you really bring up something interesting too about, about that we've sort of grown beyond our own control. And so w- what what step can I take today, tomorrow, can we take? And And this is something that's actually been really difficult for me also because I grew up in a very concrete thinking family and mm-hmm. and and there's a there's this there's this emotional, uh, it's actually kind of a dysfunction in our culture where if somebody's sharing and it may be hard, the first thing that I want to do, this is the way I was raised. I know a lot of people that are like this, but I can only speak for myself. First thing that I want to do, or in the past, the first thing that I've wanted to do is try to fix it. Oh, well, just do this, just do that. You can, you know, X, Y, Z. That's actually different than what's needed or what's asked for. Um, this culture of, oh, if we just do this, we'll be able to fix it. You know, that's like an outside perspective as if we can help something, if we, as if we can change the world by looking over there and starting over there. And yeah. there's so much great wisdom in Buddhists. I'm not a Buddhist or I'm not someone that studies or fully committed to the Buddha Dharma, but I am someone who spent 20 years uh, studying the Buddha Dharma and the idea that the only place we can actually start is with ourselves. I mean, Gandhi says that, you know, be the change you want to be in the world. And the aspect that most resonates with me, one of the aspects that I come back to again and again with the actual underlying intention in Tibetan Buddhism with regard to, say, why would we sit in meditation? If we're, if meditation, as the Zen say, you can't, you can't meditate to become the Buddha. You can be, you can meditate and maybe you'll be accident prone and then therefore become the Buddha. But it's like trying to turn a stone into a, a knife with a piece of silk, right? It's just, it's impossible. It's going to take infinity. So why would you meditate? What's the point? And this goes right to, I think, something that 
I see outside in our culture. And therefore, I know that it's in me, which is I have a propensity to turn from pain. I have a propensity to, you know, I have this really strong urge, a like and a dislike. Oh, that feels good. I like that. Oh, it's a sunny day. I like that. Oh, it's raining. I don't like that. Oh, I don't really like the taste of that food. That's the large level. What about the subtle level? Oh, wow. This thing is happening. I don't really want to look at that. I'll just look away. And so the Shambhala warriorship tradition is about sitting in meditation and making space to be with whatever is. So one thing that I can do with myself today is to be with my thoughts as they arise. I don't, I, don't, I mean, I, I know that I will follow some of them even if I were sitting in meditation because that's just what we do. That's what the thinking brain does. But if I recognize that I'm turning away even from some thoughts, then I can know that I'm also turning away from things that happen outside in the world. And so am I turning away from the oil spill, the, these tankers that just collided because I don't really know what to do and so I have this feeling of helplessness? Am I turning away from a political system that's looking more and more like an autocracy and a constitutional crisis because, because it triggers my helplessness? Because if I'm turning away from it because it triggers something, then it's just an innate sort of reactive tendency that I need to fix it. And I don't know how to fix it, so I don't need to look at it. As opposed to just, oh, I can see that. Wow, gosh, that's, a, that's really heavy. Hmm, I wonder if I can just sit with it without trying to fix it and without looking away. And I think that's what Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston talk about in Active Hope. This idea that the great turning is actually, the first step of it is just not looking away, you know? Right. Yeah, it's almost literally turning, turning our attention yeah. towards the things that exist without saying, I have to do something, do anything other than just perceive it and feel what I feel in response mm -hmm. to it. Yes. And it, it is counterintuitive on, on the level of the education model that we grew up with it. Right. And so so it's like the first thing, even hearing you say that, and I go back to this, I'm like, well, wait, then we're not going to be doing anything to help anything, right? <laughs> right. my first thought. I'm like, God, I've been doing the same cycle for 20 years. I've been noting this cycle myself since my first Buddhist class when I was 19. And I'm like, how could I still be, oh, that's right. It's the, it's the human, it's the animal aspect of ourselves. It's just that we... Are so you know we we respond to pain we run from pain. It's that we run from pain. What do you? We experience the the perceiving of it as unpleasant. Yeah. And so we say no 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 I need to keep that at arm's length. Yeah. Here's another here's another perspective that I sensed on it. Mm. Is we have had this idea installed in us that things don't happen unless we make them happen. Mm -hmm. It's, of course, absurd because, right. again, you, you referenced a, an ecosystem as a, as a model saying, oh, if we just let ourselves look at the oil spill, just perceive it, just take it in and feel the, the grief and the sadness and, and all of the things that we happen to feel that are just brought out 
in us mm-hmm. by that oh we're not doing anything but that that idea is nonsense like that that idea is similar to saying nothing ever happens in nature <laughs> right right there's stuff happening all the time right and th- and that whatever force it is that causes that movement is also in us yeah. it's not controlled by us mm. yeah i i really i really agree you know the the idea there too of of that which is in us is something i I really feel I resonated with this idea of prana since I first heard of it a long, long time ago. And as a kid, in that same age of like eight, my like creative intelligence is really coming to the fore as I'm learning how to write songs. And then ex- the external world is kind of like bullying me, kids in school and and whatever else. And I'm um some of your listeners might have grown up in wonderful Christian homes. I grew up in a wonderful Christian loving home. I am not 1% Christian anymore because of my own personal experience with how that religion felt to me as a kid during that time. And I remember I found Siddhartha by Herman Hess in our in our home as an eight-year-old. And I read this book and I'm like, huh. So on the one hand, there's like, this guy who's supposedly like God's kid and we're like to get to God, we kind of like worship him and we like drink the, you know, whatever. And then on the other hand, there's this like guy who's like a prince and he like grows up with everything. And then he finally sneaks out and he sees the like reality of suffering and of old age and death. And, and it like wakes him up and he's like, huh. And he becomes an ascetic and he wanders around for a long time and, and then he starts teaching, and there's like the Dhammapada, and, and his first teaching is, don't follow me, trust <laughs> yourself. And it's like, huh, so on this side, I'm totally empowered to be myself, and over there, I kind of have to like follow along. And that was it. it like, whatever that spell was, since that age, I've known that I, I didn't really resonate with really religion in general, just simply because of the way it showed up in my life. I know that there are lots of wonderful, beautiful spiritual traditions where people find tons of meaning. And so I have a lot of appreciation for meaning and how people inculcate meaning into their lives. It's really important in the the work that Colleen and I do together with our nonprofit. It's really creating opportunities for people to have time in nature, to develop that meaning because that's where where the pulse in me of prana of this life force is so strong it's just being out in the forest walking around recognizing that like there is so much happening and if i look through the scientific paradigm you know i go all the way back and i say okay there's these cells and they're being heated in these like geothermal vents and there's like the oldest sort of cities on earth they call them you know and I realized that like those are our great, great, great ancestors and all of life on this planet is related to those single-celled organisms. Like that is real magic. That 13 billion years later, some hydrogen can turn into you and me having a conversation <laughs> while I'm looking at a mountain and the sun is shining on us. 
And it all starts with this, like, you know, that that to me captures the essence of what I think a lot of people I know who are very um, spiritual in the sense of using the word God. Like, I think that's the that's that's me standing on one side of the river and being like, well, this is how I see that. I wouldn't use those three letters of God because I can't. That doesn't work with the way that I grew up with those. My understanding, those words don't have the same meaning, but. I can concede to how you might see that as God and I might see that as just, wow. (laughs) But it's it's the same essence, that same active ever, life force, veriditas. Who knows? But it's here and I'm here. And I know that if I go cut down a bunch of trees, then I'm affecting things. So like, okay, I'm going to stop cutting down trees. Yeah. 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 One of the first things you mentioned that you just brought up again briefly was that you felt moved to create when you were a child. Songs was a specific thing you mentioned. Mm-hmm. How has your drive to create things, what role does that play in this current new worldview that you're learning more about? It's mm, a great question. Well, so um, in my work, as a graduate student at Naropa, studying transpersonal eco-psychology. I wrote my thesis on art as an expression of transpersonal eco-psychology. And the, there's this great, there's this, 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 like, this really beautiful way of looking at fire and our ancestors and us. Let's just go back. We don't know exactly how far, but maybe a million years. And some hominids or whatever are starting. They can't make fire yet, but maybe there's a forest fire and there was some hot coals. And so they take the hot coals that they find and they have a little pouch and they got this pouch and they're like walking around and they're like carrying, oh, I need to start a fire. Oh, let me use this hot coal I found three weeks ago or whatever. Right. And so they keep a hot coal with them at all times. Somewhere along the way, they learn how to make fire. But none of those fires are still lit. But the way to make fire is so just as none of the initial energy in those first cells that came to life in whatever way on the planet and none of those guys are still alive but we because we are descendants of them we actually carry just a tiny microscopic i mean we are directly related to the those the fire of those first life forms on this planet And it's interesting because it takes us into this like deep time. Like, where am I? Where are you? We can't move here. You can't move from some other time to here. The only way you get to now is to be born into it or something. So we we can recognize that there's this, you know, we're connected on this level, this lineage to the the life of this planet undeniably, really fundamentally on like a core innate level. I, for the first, say, three albums that I did last, well, I finished my last one about five years ago, four years ago, and they were kind of my personal creation story, and really, like, becoming, I kind of call my last, my most recent album this, like, fire lotus of becoming, like, like there was just so much of that, but I look around, and I'm so touched by 
music that has deep meaning to it. And I started to, you said something right at the very beginning about the Dead Man's Forest, and you, you're, something you said reminded me of Buckminster Fuller and this idea of what can I do that only I can do simply by being me. And that's really where I've kind of allowed my creativity to come. I, I had this idea that my album that I'm working on now would be called Abstractions. And and it's funny because it's kind of an abstraction to even have such an idea, this mm-hmm. discontinuity between the many layers. But, but as I let the rite of passage work help me seat myself into this eco-psychological paradigm, this worldview that... I am actually no different from that mountain that I'm looking at. I started to allow that to flow back into my creative expression. And yeah, Songs of Earth and Mountain. That's the name of my album. It's not done, but the creativity at least is, it's almost as if at this point I'm finally at the place where I can allow that synthesis of work and meaning making and my inner spirituality my creativity of you know the the dark night of my soul and then the reclamation and the great returning all of that to sort of become one expression so that when i do sing when i do play a song i am all the way there i'm sitting with all of myself in that truth that's really wonderful the image that i get image that comes to me listening to you explain that is is like in the same way that a bird builds a nest the nest is like a, a creation of the thing that the bird is the the music that you create is like this is what the being known as thompson alexander bishop produces and it's like a, a thing that is uniquely of you of all of your experiences no one else could do it just like this yeah and it's it's like a, a testament to your existence and who you are and the way you move through the world. It seems very, very impactful, I think. I don't know. We'll see. I'm very shy. And <laughs> it's not like really many people even know that I'm a musician, right? I mean, I haven't really given my albums out a few people and family and stuff. And that's that's the way I want it. When I was a kid, I was asked to play in recitals and I was always in like public eye and you know even in college and chorus groups and all of this stuff and but this is i think i've had to like retreat psychologically mm-hmm. into the space of really protecting that as i made peace and you know reclaimed that childlike innocence that's inside of me and you know to go back like i mean i i don't profess to being a great musician i don't profess to to knowing really anything about anything but what i will say when it comes to creativity is just that like we are all creative yeah and we we are all special and important and we are all the individual snowflakes of this great giant gaia this this beingness that is all of us together and each of us as an individual matters and in our culture in our world there's this idea it's kind of coupled with competitiveness that if you didn't win, you know, if your baseball team didn't win or if your team doesn't win, whatever, like, you know, go home and do something else. And it's like, gosh, that's what happened to me as a kid with running. I was slow. 
I was the slowest person on the soccer team. So, uh, you know, I was like, why would I like running? Everybody always makes fun of me being slow. Mm-hmm. And then as like a mid-20s, I'm like, actually, you know what? I kind of always like running. And I really like being on the trail. In my 30s, I'm like, shit, I'm just going to make this part of my life. So mm-hmm. I start running and I start trail running. And then I do like marathons and I do 50 milers and I get into adventure things. And I mean, if I finish middle of the pack, I'm like, damn, I'm doing good. You know, like I don't care about the front. I just want to finish and smile and sometimes i don't finish and i'm like whatever you know but that that to me is reclaiming our sacred importance and i mm-hmm. i wish that i could go into our the the world as is and just like let everybody know that they matter because they do yeah. and your voice matters to earth and i'm so sorry and i regret so much that we live in a world where you know there's this thin margin of people that are very important you have to have an X amount of money or drive the right car or whatever else. All this crap that doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know? And that that has stripped so much of humans' creative potential. And I think it's and I think that that's a part of that like collective suffering too. Is that how can we be creative if we can't even keep up? And you know, I read something yesterday that said fifty seven percent of Americans are still living paycheck to paycheck. Mm. How are they gonna make time for nature or you know, whatever, if they, if they can't even, and so that's, that's something where, like, my heart breaks open, because that's a part of what Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston talk about, how the Industrial Growth Society creates so much dissatisfaction. It's so disempowering. It's this huge juggernaut that, you know, everybody's kind of stuck in, but only a very few get to really excel in. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a better way. We're smart species. You know, this isn't something about something lacking in human intelligence. It's that we're still suffering through the end of feudalism in different ways. It's still showing up, this idea of the one over the many. Yeah. And so, yes, that sucks. Like, okay, I don't know how to fix that. But but we can talk about it. Right. And to me, like, that's what council is all about. Let's just talk about it. Let's just like, let's grieve over what sucks and together and perhaps coming and opening our council circle to wider and wider until people that have exactly the opposite view as me can sit over there and I can still love them because they're a part of the sacred universe that we are all a part of. Yeah. It's what we talked about earlier. It exists. And we don't have to know what to do in order to acknowledge that it exists right yeah yeah i think so but it still breaks my heart open i mean that that i think that's we got to see pema children and and uh, krishna das last two summers ago at uh, the taramandala retreat center and, and somebody asked pema children this great question Oh, what do you do when you see so much suffering and, and your heart breaks open? How do you how do you stay with it? How do you keep practicing? Mm. And Pema Chodron, like you could just see her. She got I mean, she's an eighty year old like Tibetan, basically a Tibetan nun who's mm. really a lama, but because of whatever. You know, so you could see the tears in her eyes and she's thinking about it, thinking about it, and she's like, Well you you do. You just let your heart get broken open and you stay with it. And then you let your heart mm. get broken open again and you stay with it and you just keep doing it. 
And it's really interesting. She's like, you know, the capacity of the heart to feel it, it doesn't necessarily, like even if we were practicing Tonglen, where we take in the idea of someone else's suffering and we offer our peace back to it. It's a beautiful practice. She's like, you don't necessarily, you're not going to say, oh, well, I'm taking in my friend's suffering who has cancer and I'm going to give back. You're not literally taking on their cancer. You're taking on the suffering of their experience of it and you're offering peace. And she's like, and it's the same. You just let your heart get broken open again and again. And I, I think I'll always have that image because here's someone who spent so many decades practicing that and still tears come and still it's the same thing. It's like there's that innate beauty in that genuine heart of sadness. And and I have so much awe and respect for people who are willing to hold that up for us as models, as mentors that are 30 or 40 or 50 years down the road from where we are. Because I need that. And I think I think it's a part of our human need that we need to see models. And so as a part of that council, we also have the opportunity to dream together, to dream what it might be like, and then to help envision that dream by holding it in our heart as what is also possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I have any more words. Me neither. <laughs> oh. Well, let's wrap it up there then. Sounds uh, good. Thank you so much for speaking of the heart. Yeah, thanks for sharing the space. It's really beautiful. I didn't know yeah. what I would share today. So... That is all that you will hear from T-Bird, certainly for the time being. If that idea speaks to you, that idea of sitting with whatever response you have to the situations that you encounter, just paying attention to how you feel and not necessarily having to take action immediately. But as he says, when your heart gets broken, just let it happen and offer peace back. If you wish to practice that in your life, I hope you will. Thanks to Thompson for sharing with us, and thanks to you for being here to listen. Bringing it back around, I inserted my conversation with Thompson into the middle of my conversation with Colleen for two reasons. The first is because Colleen had mentioned an important part of her story, transpersonal ego psychology. And she and I never managed to come back around and talk explicitly about what it was. And I felt like my conversation with Thompson would give you a much better holistic idea of what it means to exist in concert with nature without necessarily having to come up with a plan to manage and fix the damage that we've done to it. And the other reason, of course, was that at the end of episode 46, Colleen talked about the being whose heart she knew was approaching her in that Naropa classroom. And of course, that turned out to be Thompson. And you heard him talk a little bit about that. 
So next week, we will hear the rest of Colleen's story about where her inner confidence comes from and where that has led her. I hope that you will join us for the conclusion of these two conversations and that you feel like you've gained something from them. Thanks for listening this week, and I will talk to you next week on the Dead Man's Forest. Bye-bye.